The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... More provisions of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act become reality this year. Welcome to ACB Reports for April 2016. Karen Peltz-Strauss is the Deputy Chief of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. In that capacity, she oversees the development of rules which cover many aspects of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. This month, ACB Reports brings you her presentation, which was recorded during the recent legislative seminar of the American Council of the Blind. She was introduced by ACB Executive Director Eric Bridges. So we have this law called the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, but it has continued to sort of uh, unfurl itself with regard to the regulatory implementation over the last roughly five-plus years. Uh, it has been quite a time for us in the advocacy community to be able to respond to the various rulemakings that have come from it to help implement this really cool law and to ensure that the implementation of it is as strong as possible. The individual that is going to be speaking to you is largely responsible at the FCC for ensuring that things are being done to see to that, that deadlines are being met to implement this law of ours that we think so much of. There's a lot more to be said about the law, about its implementation. This is a big year for its implementation as it pertains to uh, individuals out there that like watching TV, like watching satellite TV, like watching TV independently, being able to independently access uh, aspects of their cable box that they may have never had independent access to before, but we're always being charged for. Hmm. Funny that. So there's a lot to sort of digest, but it's an annual occurrence. And the reason why it's an annual occurrence that she joins us is that there is always a lot going on with regard to the implementation. And I am so glad to have uh, our colleague, and I will also say she is a, a good friend, Karen Peltz-Strauss, Deputy Chief of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau at the Federal Communications Commission. Welcome, Karen. Hi, it's wonderful to be back to see you again. I've uh, been working to try to figure out what our rules say because right now they're so complicated with respect to your issues and trying to keep them straight has been a task for myself, but fortunately I have... Uh, my two former colleagues on either side of me, flanking me, Eric on one, Mark on the other, who were my cohorts in crime when we first drafted the CPAA. So I'm going to ask both of them to call out if I get something wrong. But our rules have, have indeed gotten very comprehensive and very um, complicated with respect to issues addressing television and emergency access. 
Let me just start by saying that many of you know that we have a disability advisory committee. I think I spoke about this a little bit last year when I came. We have now had three meetings of this group. We have five subcommittees on all kinds of issues, communications in general, emergency communications, the technology transition, video programming, cognitive disabilities, um, deaf issues, all kinds of issues. And um, I am just ecstatic about this committee because I have never seen a committee work harder. These various topics are divided into subcommittees, and the subcommittees have adopted a number of recommendations. We call them actionable recommendations, recommendations that we can actually take and use, and and we already have started doing that with many of the recommendations. I'm going to talk a little bit about those. We've been working as a federal agency with the Access Board on their 508 guidelines, as you know. Um, Yeah, I'm going to be clapping as well when they eventually come out. Um, since I've been working on them since 12 years now. so, But they are due out this year, and I think that they're on schedule, so hopefully that will happen. So I'm going to dig right into some of the issues and start off with emergency information because I know that's, that's so important to everybody. We adopted rules in April 2013 that um, required all emergency information shown on television visually in text crawls or scrolls during non-newscast TV programming, you know, the kind that breaks into programming, to have the technical capability to make that emergency information audible on the secondary audio stream, on the SAP channel, in other words. And there has to be an audio tone at the start of the information, and the information has to be conveyed at least twice through the SAP channel. The rules were originally scheduled to go into effect May 26th. The industry got an extension, but they are in effect now. They've been in effect since November 30th, 2015. Um, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever gotten this information via the SAP channel? I'm just curious. Okay, there's a handful of people. If you hear the audio tone and try to access the information on the SAP channel and you're not getting that information, please let us know because we need to know whether our rules are being implemented. So either send me an email or send Eric or Mark an email and they'll tell me um, or file a complaint, which is um, accessible on our website. We have a whole complaint procedure because we really do need to know how effectively this is being implemented. There was also an extension for analog-only cable systems. They have until June 2018, but I doubt that many of you have those particular systems. If you have both digital, if there are some combined digital and analog systems, and they can comply by giving you free set-top boxes. There's also a small extension for um, visual but non-textual information, like graphics, like maps and things like that. They had an additional 18 months past the May 2015 deadline, and the requirement for announcing school closings in an audible fashion was waived entirely pending resolution of our further notice of proposed rulemaking, and that was with the agreement of the blind community. In May of 2015, we also adopted rules requiring easier access to the SAP channel. This has not gone into effect yet. This goes into effect December 2016, but that will require a mechanism for activating the secondary audio stream to access the audible emergency information that has to be simple and easy to use, such as by a button, a key, an icon, or something comparable. And I know that this is a huge deal for all of you because we know that there's been a lot of difficulty trying to access this information, trying to find the SAF channel. There is no comparable requirement for accessing information 
or video description, but what we're hoping is that once this mechanism is in for emergency information, that it will naturally have the benefits for video description as well. Um, we also issued a rule in May 2015 that requires the textual emergency information that's provided by cable companies and satellite companies, they're called MVPDs, multi-channel video programming distributors, can be accessed by second screen devices. So if they're streaming the same program over IP on these second screen devices, such as a tablet, a smartphone, a laptop, etc., it has to be audibly accessible through the SAP channel as well when it's delivered as part of that video programming distributor's network. That particular requirement goes into effect on July 10th, 2017. Again, there's no comparable requirement for video description. This is only an emergency access requirement. But again, we're hoping that it, it carries through. That's not to say that this is still pending for us to have uh, the same requirements for video description. So that's the emergency information rules. Um, we also have some separate rules that we adopted or notices affecting video description. This past year, you may know that we changed the five top non-broadcast channels that have to comply with our video description rules, and the new ones are Disney, History, TBS, TNT, and USA, and History replaced Nickelodeon. We, I believe, exempted um, ESPN again. So all of those top five non-broadcast networks, plus ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC, plus their affiliated broadcast stations, all have to comply with our video description rules. We also issued a notice this year that reminded the covered entities that the top 60 television markets must each provide at least 50 hours of video described primetime or children's television programming per calendar quarter. This was up from 25 markets, so there was a significant jump this past year. We have authority under the CBIA to go further. We specifically have an authority to expand from 50 hours per quarter to 87.5 hours. It's about a, um, another 25% increase. So that is now under review, and um, the Media Bureau is working diligently to move ahead with that. They are working on some other related matters as well, and I would think that you're going to see that in the next, I'd say, two months as a notice of proposed rulemaking. So if you feel strongly about this, you should do something about it. So please file comments. I just want to note that one of the recommendations that we got from the video programming subcommittee of the Disability Advisory Committee was on this particular expansion of hours. We were thinking that perhaps the um, advisory committee would put forward a recommendation to expand the hours, but um, we got something a little different instead. Um, we got a list of questions that we should ask in this proceeding. Some of the questions, just to give you an idea, are what is the extent of current consumer use of video-described programming? Are there any studies or metrics on such use? Would an increase in the number of mandated hours introduce any technical or operational problems? Uh, what are the financial, operational, and opportunity costs of providing additional video programming? And other questions about costs. 
they're basically just mostly questions that we should ask. If the FCC were to increase the required number of hours, should it relax its rules on counting repeat programming? Does the FCC have authority to require the provision of video description in programming previously described for programming that will be distributed on a different platform, such as online? And and the questions go on. It's quite quite a comprehensive list. Uh, You can expect to see a lot of those questions in the notice of proposed rulemaking because we really do take seriously what the recommendations are from our advisory committee. So, again, please feel free to answer those. We also, um, in the past year, held a video description roundtable. Some of you here participated in that. It was on June 22, 2015, and we looked at all kinds of issues. Let me just tell you some of the recommendations. One of the recommendations was trying to obtain a central accessible location to find video programming, and I believe that the video programming committee is still exploring that. We know that there are lots of different lists, but they're not really centralized, although I think they're getting a little better, but to make it easier to find programming. Whether there should be a dedicated secondary audio stream, because right now we can share this stream with Spanish language programming. Whether there should be video description quality standards. Whether there should be consistency in terminology when referring to described programming. I'll notice that we are the only place left, I think, that refers to it as video description. Everybody else uses audio description. Uh, Questions, issues about Spanish language described programming, uh, access by deafblind users, satellite programming and video description, um, encouraging the industry to create and improve apps and storage potential in the cloud. So those are just some of the issues that were explored. And um, again, the video description subcommittee of our video programming committee of the Disability Advisory Committee, hopefully is following up on some of those. The next issue that I wanted to talk to you about is user interfaces. We had a major rulemaking on November 20th of this year in which we addressed these issues on user interfaces on video programming devices such as televisions and cable set-top boxes. And this follows rules that we had adopted in 2013 that had required manufacturers and video programming distributors to make their user interfaces accessible to people with disabilities. As you know, Comcast has done so, Samsung has done so to a certain extent, but our rules don't actually go into effect until December of this year. So that's going to be a really major shift. I, for one, am really looking forward to it. Um, My particular cable company seems to be waiting for the last minute to do anything. So we've already seen how significant these changes can be, for example, in the Comcast model. What I love about this is that I see what's happening here to be very similar to what happened with closed captioning. How many of you have heard the Comcast commercials? Right? Almost a lot of you. Have you heard anything about blind people? No. (laughs) No. So it's gone mainstream. And I always find that interesting because when television manufacturers first added captioning to their television sets, they didn't mention anything about deaf people. They talked about your Uncle Leo who was making a lot of noise in the room and so you could put on the captions while the ball game was on and watch them or your spouse that was sleeping next to you and you could turn on the captions so that you wouldn't bother them. They must have had 15 different reasons to watch captions. Deaf people weren't mentioned at all. So I just find this funny that they're doing it again and um, really boasting a lot about the ability to access programming by using your voice. It is a phenomenal way of accessing programming, whether you're sighted or not. So the new rules that we adopted 
try to make sure that viewers know about the existence of the accessible features and get the support that they need to use them. So they require, for example, that people who are blind or visually impaired get access to information and documentation on the functionalities of these devices, including in user guides, bills, installation guides, and product support information, and through technical support. They require that equipment manufacturers notify customers about the availability of the accessible devices on their websites, and manufacturers and video programming distributors must also provide a contact person or office to answer questions about their accessible equipment and features. And some of these new rules, they have to go through our Office of Management and Budget Clearance, but some will become effective on March 7th. But most will become effective when OMB clears them. So um, I'm not sure of the distinction. Some agencies have to go through OMB for everything, and that's been part of the problem with the Access Board rules. But for us, they only have to approve what's called Paperwork Reduction Act, and it takes less time. So it's usually a matter of months. It's not a matter of years. So hopefully we'll be seeing those as well very soon. In the same order, in this November order, we also, I believe it was in the November order, uh, we said that um, video description activation mechanisms relying on gesture control will be permissible only if they're simple and easier to use. What we've been promised by the industry is that if they use gesture control, they're going to also be using other mechanisms because they realize that that's just not going to work for a lot of people. National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program, the stories that we get are just remarkable. Um, people going back to college, people accessing communications, connecting, reconnecting with family members, their grandchildren, their grandparents, um, people getting jobs. It's just been spectacular. But it's been a pilot program, and I think I've mentioned that in the past, and it still remains a pilot program. But in May of 2015, we extended it for another year to the end of June of 2016, and we proposed rules to make it permanent. We are hoping to get these rules out by the end of June, but if we don't, we will just extend it another year. Um, They're actually more complicated than you think. We're we're, we're overseeing 50-plus programs, 50 states, plus various territories, and there's a lot of ramifications with respect to income guidelines and the type of equipment, and we also reimburse for all kinds of um, services, evaluations, and training as well. So we're working through those. It's a fairly significant proceeding. Every now and then we get a notice from one of the states that they are not able to continue providing their services under this particular program. Usually they're very tiny programs. So what we do is we just put out a notice that we are going to be changing the state entity, and we just did that recently with Virginia on January 14th. The Virginia Department for the Blind and Vision took over the program for the state of Virginia. I've told you about all the good things. Now I'm going to. T- I probably should have started with the waivers to start off with, so you'd like me when I left. But um, I'm just going to mention a couple of the waivers. But I will tell you that we worked very closely with the blind community while we were working on these waivers, and I think they're okay. About two years ago, we granted waivers to the um, Entertainment Software Association. We gave them a two-year waiver. They had asked for an indefinite waiver for all games, all software, all services, virtually anything that they do. Um, And we said, no, we're going to give you two years instead of the rest of your lives. And then they came back to us this year, and they only asked for a waiver for 
I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically only like for another two, I think it was 18 months. Um, and it was only for game software. Right. So we were so happy that they didn't come back for more that we gave it to them. We extended it to January 1st, 2017. So at this point, it's only another year. And it's only for, um, as I said, game software. I think that they've been making a concerted effort to work with the community to try to make their um, games, software, services, etc., more accessible to this community. Okay, now the e-reader waiver. The e-reader waiver was a waiver for basic e-readers. And originally, again, the there was an e-reader coalition, uh, Amazon, Kobo, and Sony. Sony. And I, th- I don't even think that Sony makes these anymore. Um, I think it's ju- I think that only Kobo and Amazon are the ones that make basic e-readers. So these are the e-readers that are not like your tablets. They're not like your iPads or your Kindle Fire. Um, they're basically only for books and. It is not easy to access advanced communication services, which is basically like email and instant messaging with these basic, very basic e-readers. So they came to us a couple years ago and asked for an indefinite waiver from our requirements that advanced communication services be accessible to people with disabilities. And we gave them a one-year waiver, and then they came back the next year, and we gave them another one-year waiver, and then they came back this year. The difference this year, we grant, and what we did this year is we did give them an indefinite waiver. And the reason that we did is because we had been looking at the trends for these devices and what we were finding, we thought that the multifunction tablets and these devices would eventually converge, but actually the opposite has happened, that they've become even more separate than before with these devices really not performing much of a communication function. But there were other things that changed as well, particularly with Amazon. And I don't know that they've released some of the stuff that they told us about, but they made a really concerted effort to release new products that are going to make reading a lot easier on electronic devices. So I'm gonna, I can't tell you a whole lot about this because I don't think they've released some of the stuff that they're going to be. I know they released one of their devices, but that was very critical in, our, in making our decision to grant them the independent waiver, the uh, infinite waiver. Um, but let me just say that the waiver is very, very narrow. It only applies to devices that don't have LCD screens, but rather uses screens to optimize reading. The device has no camera. It's not offered or shipped to consumers with built-in ACS client applications. And the device manufacturer doesn't develop ACS applications at all for that device. And it's not marketed to consumers for ACS communications as a communications device. It's marketed as a reading device. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we, and we, by the way, we did consult with the deafblind community on this as well, Despite the fact that we've granted them this indefinite waiver, we are asking for a report from them in three years, February 2019, that includes a study of the technological development, marketing, and consumer use trends on basic e-readers so that we can reassess at that time and determine whether or not the waiver should continue. We have a new rulemaking out that I wanted to also mention to you involving independent set-top boxes. As you know, right now, you rent your set-top box from your cable company or, your, or, or satellite company. And we have a new rulemaking right now that is uh, looking into whether or not people should be able to buy these independently. And I'd like to – I'm drawing your attention to this because the notice of proposed rulemaking that went out indicates that we believe that the accessibility rules flow through to these devices. But we really, really – and I can't emphasize this enough – really need your input on this. 
These are a different kind of covered entity. The programming would still flow through the entities that are covered by our rules, but the boxes could be purchased in a store. So you would go to a store and get your set-top box. So I know that there's concern within this community justifiably about whether or not some of the user interface obligations that I mentioned will pass through. There's no question that the video description will pass through, but I'm just alerting you to this because I want you to make sure that you uh, weigh in on this. That rulemaking was just adopted about two weeks ago. I also wanted to mention, I know that you heard a speaker that talked about the Microsoft settlement. Remind you that we are at your disposal. If you have complaints about inaccessible technology, please come to us and participate in our request for a dispute resolution process. We are very proud of ACB and what it accomplished through this settlement, and we're also proud of our attorneys that worked with ACB and through negotiations helped ACB work out an agreement with Microsoft. Um, I think it's a great example of what we can do. Beyond all that I'm talking to you about now, which is writing the rules, this is a real good example of how we have implemented them. So I think that if you see the, you know, the positive aspects of bringing your concerns to us, maybe you'll bring more. Um, and last but not least, I just wanted to mention – well. Next to last but not least, um, I wanted to mention that we're doing a lot on cognitive disabilities as well, and I realize that's not necessarily your bailiwick, but I just wanted you to know that we're exploring how our rules can be um, implemented better for this particular community, and it's a, it's a huge community of people with all kinds of intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's something that we really haven't focused on in the past because we've been so focused on blindness, deafness, visual impairment, etc., more communication or sensory types of disabilities. There was one other recommendation from the video programming subcommittee of the Disability Advisory Committee that just was passed that recommended interagency coordination with respect to, like for Department of Justice and Department of Transportation, on accessibility of video programming. So, um, for example, hotels, for example, have TVs. Can you access video description in hotels? I can tell you I can't even access captioning in hotels. So um, so this is basically just asking us to work with these other entities. DOT would be for airlines. Again, you, very hard to find captioning even on, on movies. It's actually just coming about. I would think it's virtually impossible to find video description on movies on, on um, airplanes. So um, that is also an outstanding recommendation. We will definitely be following up on that. I'm not sure when, but <laughs> we will be doing it. Thank you. Karen Peltz Strauss, Deputy Chief of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau of the Federal Communications Commission, was recorded during the legislative seminar of the American Council of the Blind on February 29th in Alexandria, Virginia. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.